Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and this week I'm going to be discussing Murders of Karloff Manor uh, in an overview as opposed to a preview. So very, very similar, I don't know, structure or conceit to the previous episode, except now I've actually played with the cards. We are still pre any 17 lands data available, or if there is early data, I haven't looked at it. I don't know for sure. So this is going to be very much my own impressions. I've done, I don't know, probably in the 10 to 15 drafts range at this point. Uh, did five in paper and then a bunch yesterday on stream um, and one off stream and then one today. So I, I've played a decent amount with the set, but not a ton. And, you know, I've watched other people play because I, uh, like I said, a bunch of uh, the drafts that I, I did five drafts in paper. So all those I got to like watch other matches and talk to people, but I still don't have any aggregate data. So I guess that is to say with all of this, you know, it's going to be mostly my own opinion and my own experiences, which are of course biased by my own play style and preferences. So there are certainly things that I'm going to say where I have some concerns about like confirmation bias or whatever, where I add some theories, I put them into practice, they worked out and then it's like, okay, this works, but you know, will it work for everyone? Will it turn out to be the best thing overall? None of that's really knowable for me at this point, if ever. Those disclaimers out of the way, let's get to my personal first impressions this set. So overall, first thing I want to say, kind of most important in some ways, but also least important in others, all matter of perspective, is that I liked the set. I thought it's very fun. And specifically, the thing that I like it, about it is it feels like there are a lot of different approaches that feel viable and meaningfully distinct. In my first drafts, I lost to a lot of like good streamlined aggressive decks, but even those decks felt and played pretty different from each other. I've played against very low curve, like red black decks with a lot of menace uh, that kind of just like got underneath me and were hard to block and then had like removal spells to set up to like punish me in spots where I had to like leave a creature back to try to set up a double block and then just before attacking they kill one of my creatures and then I can't block at all. And that's like a pretty different play pattern than like the blue-white detective decks that have like a good amount of evasion but then also some like late game value to be able to kind of like grind a bit which feel pretty different from like the Boros and Slesnia go wide decks that feel pretty different from I've played against like mono green just like huge creatures that like you know worked pretty well. There are a lot of different aggressive decks that played well, but played like a little bit differently from each other. And then the same thing is true of uh, mid-range and control decks. There, I, I've played and had success with like kind of the traditional like bomb plus removal approach to control decks, but also I've uh, seen and like played some kind of more like synergy engine long game grindy decks that really kind of maximize some build around rares and uncommons to like generate kind of this like inexorable tide or whatever you want however you want to think about it you know cards like chalk outline which is the uncommon three and a green enchantment where whenever a creature leaves your graveyard you uh, make a 2-2 detective and investigate there's also Detective Satchel, the uh, blue-red 2 artifact that uh, investigates twice when it enters the battlefield, and then whenever you sack an artifact, 
or you can tap it to make a thopter, but only if you've sacked an artifact. And both of those, uh, with the right support, can kind of give you like a steady stream of bodies that can uh, end up kind of like blocking for a while and then taking over the game. So yeah, the 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 kind of like engine uncommon build around uh, decks feel appreciably different, like high synergy. Uh, feel feel different than the kind of like low synergy, just like kill your stuff, play some bombs style, which is a little bit different than the like five color good stuff, proactive morph kind of package that uh, maybe leans more on the like green, red and green, white uh, payoffs for disguised creatures. So the early stages, once people figure out like, oh, this deck generally doesn't work and this deck generally does work and here's how to maximize the good decks. And then they get like better at kind of like preying on some of these like slower engine decks. Maybe the slower engine decks become less viable, but of course, then when there's public perception that those decks are less viable, there's less competition for the synergy pieces there. And then if nobody wants it, you can like get it all and it might come up. So there, there should be some kind of interesting kind of like back and forth in terms of ways the metagame could develop in this set. And I guess I have kind of a big picture guess that uh, like the 17 lands win rates for most or all of the kind of like build around uncommons and probably several of the rares will be very low. But I don't think that those cards will be bad. I think that they'll just be played a lot in decks that don't fully support them, but I think the decks that do support them will st still do well. Thinking about that led to a consideration that I hadn't really had in terms of data analysis, which is looking at frequency of appearing in trophy decks as a separate method of like evaluating the success of a card from overall win rate. So if any, uh, you know, data forward, uh, you know, people who know how to like actually get into it and do some analysis want to kind of like look at of the times this card is played, how often does the deck that's playing at trophy as a way to kind of like see what the potential for build around is as, as a way to kind of like minimize the effects of people playing cards in the wrong spot. It's not perfect, but it might be something interesting to look into. So yeah, overall impressions of the format are that there's very good diversity and, uh, you know, I, I feel like it's been a long time since there have been this many cards that really push you to and reward you for uh, building around specific synergies in ways that are like meaningfully different from how you would draft a deck if you didn't have that particular card. And that kind of stuff always makes drafts a lot more fun for me. So I'm pretty optimistic about this set so far. A lot of the cases are like less heavy build arounds, but still, you know, are meaningfully better in some decks than others and have some of that, you know, high synergy build around stuff type, I don't know, feel or experience to them. But I guess with a lot of the build arounds and a lot of the cases, the prescription for how to build, build around them is not necessarily super precise or linear or narrow, which is a good thing. So yeah, like a lot of the cases, I feel like they're not worthless if you don't optimize them, but there's like 
a range in terms of like, you know, how much is this about the like first effect versus how much am I like maximizing being good at solving it or taking the most advantage of its solved state. Overall cases have felt pretty like interesting to me and have played pretty well. Moving on to other things about this set, stabilizing, like when you're behind and uh, you're playing against an aggressive deck and you kind of turn the corner, that space has felt more precarious. Uh, like after you've started to turn the corner, it's still kind of like, it's easier to lose a turn or two after that than it felt in say Lost Caverns of Ixalan because this set has more reach. There's like more burn, more uh, ways to make creatures unblockable or creatures that are unblockable and ways to give trample. Trample in particular has felt really uh, impactful and important in this set, partially because I think a lot of the like build around engines, their output is like little creatures and there are a lot of big creatures that can just get blocked repeatedly by those little creatures from the output of the engine decks. But then if you just give a big creature trample, then the person who's like spinning their wheels trying to like get their engine going or keep it going or turn, you know, make forward progress from there just dies. Removal in this set is in a pretty interesting place. It's felt good to have removal, but clunky removal has felt really bad sometimes. And uh, in a lot of my drafts, I feel like I see a lot of removal spells very late in the packs, like more than in a lot of other sets. Uh, murder in this set feels more like murder in Streets of New Capenna than like murder in other sets, where it's not necessarily drafted super highly and it doesn't feel like it's, you know, the best common. And that said, it's not like I don't want removal, um, but... Uh, you kind of want to figure out which removal spells are right for your deck and, um, you know, it, you don't necessarily take removal spells over everything. Also, in general, I'm a lot higher on instant speed removal than not instant sorcery speed removal. And I think that that's particularly true in this set to a very meaningful extent. Uh, I suspect that most of that is just because of the interaction with disguise creatures where, you know, a lot, of, most of the time a creature is going to flip over in combat and that's going to meaningfully change combat and being able to like kill a creature that your opponent has turned face up before it deals damage is a really big deal. So I, I think even more than normal and normally quite a bit, Instant speed removal is quite a bit better than sorcery speed removal. Early experiences for me have felt like they point toward confirming my, uh, you know, pre-experience expectations that uh, mana fixing is plentiful and easy, and you can play a lot of colors if you want to. Most of my deck, most of my drafts, I've been playing five color. The fact that, you know, I'm me, I draft the way that I do, and I had that expectation. There's some amount of, oh, well, I thought I could do this, and that led to doing it, and then it kind of worked, so I kind of kept pushing it or whatever. Like, there, there's some amount of potential self-fulfilling prophecy or uh, confirming, you know, my biases there uh, in a way that's, like, biased. 
but at the same time it's also very possible to have those expectations and then to like see in practice that it doesn't work and change my mind and I have not had that experience. So my perception is still that if you want to play a lot of colors you can certainly do that and the primary when I have not been five colors it has or when I've played fewer colors it's been less because I couldn't find fixing or couldn't make the mana work and more because I was trying to pursue something where the cards that fit the strategy weren't evenly distributed among the colors and were, you know, were basically all in a small set of colors. So um, I talked about, uh, you know, overlapping synergies that exist in different uh, shards and wedges in my previous episode, and that very much felt like a thing. Like, Naya disguised creatures as a block has felt like a coherent thing to draft, and Sultai graveyard stuff has felt like a coherent thing to draft. Where, like, when I've been blue-red a lot of the time, I haven't felt a reason to add colors to that, because the I'm really looking for, like, that the artifact synergies that appear at significantly higher density in blue-red than in other places, such that it's not really worth adding cards from other places. Like, I could get additional cards that investigate by splashing a color, but it's you don't, you don't need to do that to get the number of clues that you need for your blue-red deck, so you just end up staying in blue-red. And I think, you know, certainly with a lot of the aggressive decks, um, what they're trying to do is kind of self-contained in two colors, and obviously, you know, I always feel like you want you you need better mana in more aggressive decks, and so splashing is worse there. So, like, there are reasons to not play five colors, and it's not that you're always five color, but step one for me isn't, I can cast cards of these colors, let me choose the best card of the color, and is more, I'm, tr I'm looking for these kinds of effects, and I'm going to take the cards that are best at doing that, regardless of which colors they're in, and sometimes that'll pull me into like more colors and sometimes it won't. Like in Sultai, with, there's uh, a very, very strong interaction between uh, Chalked Outline, the uh, build around uh, artifact enchantment that I talked about earlier, the four mana one that makes a clue and a detective whenever a creature leaves, leaves your graveyard, and Curious Cadaver, the blue-black, um, tuna blue, two blue-black, three-one flyer. Uh, when you sacrifice a clue, return it from your graveyard to hand. So if you have chalk outline and you sack a clue, you make another clue and a detective because that leaves your graveyard and going to your hand. So if you had a free way to sacrifice clues and a free way to discard curious cadaver, you would be able to make infinite detectives and draw infinite cards unless your way to sacrifice clues wasn't to use their own abilities and was to sacrifice them to something else. Whatever. You're usually not actually going infinite with that combo. What you're doing is you're casting your cadaver, and then you can block anything with it, and it dies, and then you loop it again. And so having that interaction would be a reason to splash one of those three colors in a deck that was the other uh, two colors to have that thing come up. Whereas... You wouldn't really want to splash a white card in that deck because there aren't white cards that are really helping you with this like graveyard creatures leaving the graveyard stuff that you're trying to do. And so 
decks that are like leaning really hard on building that kind of engine will you know likely not play five colors because they just won't benefit from the other colors moving on the uncommon hybrid split cards have generally impressed me or exceeded expectation uh kind of across the board partially it's just that they're great for collect evidence uh partially um you know there you usually have like a cheap like two mana effect and then a six mana effect and having a card that's you know like useful for one thing early and then a powerful effect late has been very good and some of them just like the effect is maybe stronger than it reads like the overrun um that only get, that gives plus two plus two and trample and can turn a creature face up um for six i had some concerns about maybe plus two plus two isn't big enough but it mostly has been um, either creatures are really big and benefit from the trample or you can make a lot of tokens and plus two plus two on a lot of things is just enough pluses or uh, like push pull uh, push is um, kill a tap creature pull is return two creatures from a single graveyard to the battlefield under your control they gain haste sacrifice them at the end step that's a pretty unusual effect and not necessarily, there aren't necessarily a lot of like direct analogs for how good it is. Uh, in my experience, it's been pretty good. It's not very difficult to like find a creature that'll give you some kind of like lasting object uh, from entering or from connecting or whatever. And then also just like two extra creatures with haste is not necessarily all that difficult to kill your opponent with. So th those cards have all felt very good, very castable. The like nature of the hybrid mana costs on those things works out such that a really wide range of decks can use them. Other stuff, just because I think it's something people are going to wonder about or associate with me. Yes, I have played Living Conundrum, the uh, four and a blue, two five hexproof that stops you from decking and uh, becomes like a 10 10 flying hexproof if you run out of cards in your library. Have played with it, have not done its thing. It has, I, it has not felt like I've come particularly close to doing its thing, even in decks that are like theoretically relatively good at setting it up. I do think it's possible. I don't think you should like draft around it or try to do it. I am not expecting to prioritize that card very highly. If you're looking for disguise creatures, it feels really easy to get them and very easy to have too many of them. That's kind of always the case. You only want so many three drops and each of them is a mana sink to varying degrees and in addition to only wanting three like a three mana spells are already kind of expensive and they want more mana on top of that and you just only want so many cards that like are th slightly understated three drops and then need more mana on top of that so yeah you're gonna have you're gonna have more of that stuff than you need which means that there's a lot of pressure on other three drops to be like really exceptional if you're gonna play them rather than just playing disguised creature that you're gonna have more than enough of anyway and then like the disguise creatures even though they are kind of like it's easy to have too much of it like it's not like they're bad cards like it's probably better to have the ability to spend mana to flip over your creature and the ability to like cast it in a different mode and stuff than it is to just like have an extra power or toughness and some trinket text or whatever so um i think really more than saying like oh yeah don't play too many disguise creatures which is true but also really don't value uh, like three mana creatures that aren't exceptional. So for example, I think that the uh, one one that makes a two two detective, you know, 
uh, I talked about how in general, like the that kind of three mana for two bodies for like three, three worth of stats type cards generally overperform and are among the best cards. With that card, I think that, you know, the detective deck is probably like there, there are decks that want it. There are, there are like white decks that go wide that really care about what it's offering. But I think that in a kind of a generic deck that's not doing anything like particularly synergistic with it, you'd usually rather just have like a more for some other synergistic card or not even a three drop in that space. So I think that that card is going to like perform worse than it would in other sets just due to the like abundant competition at three mana. And then similarly, because there are all these three mana cards that are mana sinks, uh, one and two mana cards uh, get a little boost in terms of how good they are and how much you should be prioritizing them. One kind of random note, a weird feature of the collect evidence decks is that because they're really, they really care about like generating a total casting cost in graveyard, one mana cards especially, but like cheap cards in general um, can feel bad in that deck. Because like if you mill yourself or if you're just kind of trading cards and you've played the game for a while and you've used some spells and then you look at your graveyard and the total cost in your graveyard is you know, still like three or four or something, even though there are multiple spells there, then you can't really do your collect evidence thing. A lot of those decks, like Toxin Analysis, I think is the name of it, or something like that, the black trick that gives Death Touch and Lifelink and uh, Investigates, feels like a pretty good card. It's the kind of card that a green-black deck really wants, because, you know, you're expecting to maybe need to gain some life to, like, offset early damage that you took while stabilizing, or to, like, give yourself a little bit more of a cushion to like not die to some flyers or something. But the fact that the card in your deck only costs one mana um, has been a little bit more painful than I expected. So you don't really want to solve that by just like not playing cheap cards. So this is largely just another big point in favor of the uncommon split cards as a way to have like a cheap thing that also contributes a lot to collect evidence. Um, those, those cards are really, really important to decks that care about collecting evidence. Other than that, just, I don't know. If, 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 if it's close, like, the other thing, another big one is the black X uh, target creature gets minus X minus X, where you're spending a lot of mana on it, but it's not contributing to your evidence collection. So that might be a card to avoid and, you know, try to play the, like, green uh, plus two power uh, bite spell and murder and stuff like that that costs a little bit more mana rather than this card that like costs a lot of mana but that mana doesn't contribute to your evidence. I think that mostly covers my like first impressions. Initial review is positive and uh, yeah I'm gonna turn it over to um, chat for specific questions, conversations, stuff like that. And while they're doing that, I want to thank the newest patron. So thank you, Jackson. Uh, if anyone else is interested in supporting the podcast, be sure to check out patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. All right. So questions. How much do the new play boosters affect how you draft? So I don't have a thing to compare it to, right? Because I mean, like I've drafted other sets with draft boosters but I haven't drafted this set with hypothetical draft boosters of this set. And I draft this set the way that I draft this set. It's kind of like saying, how differently would you draft Strixhaven if it didn't have a Mystical Archives sheet? I guess you could figure that out by just not picking from the Mystical Archives sheet. But I don't know 
why that's important to know. What I will say about my experience with the play boosters is that they have not, to me, felt very impactful. You know, there is all this discussion about like, oh, a pack can have up to four rares now. Packs usually have one rare. Sometimes they have two. It doesn't feel that different from any set with like an archive sheet or uh, like with any bonus sheet or any other way that it can end up with uh, two rares in a pack, which is certainly not particularly a new thing. The like one less card per pack has not felt very impactful to me. The list broadly feels basically the same to me as any other bonus sheet. Overall, I, I, I mean, to, to me, uh, the change feels closer to negligible. I don't, I don't have much else to say about it. I've mentioned some of the three color combinations that contain green to be good blocks to make a deck around. Uh, how have I felt about some of the non-green blocks of three colors? Uh, did they also come together naturally? So uh, yesterday I trophied with an Esper control deck that I started with the uh, rare two mana 2-2 two -two flyer that draws two cards and then uh, discards two cards unless you discard a creature with flying or an instant or sorcery. And I leaned much more than you need to into drafting around flyers instants and sorceries because like those cards are good anyway so didn't mind having being instructed to find those and uh it just played as a very good control deck the mana was totally workable i had um a dual land and a couple of evolving wilds and um, you know whatever the new evolving wilds is called um and uh then i was just like playing a control deck and so the mana, the mana was pretty smooth, and the synergies were maybe not as explicit, but just kind of, you know, removal and flyers uh, with, like, you know, more of an eye toward inevitability than closing the game out felt, felt structurally coherent, if, like, not super high synergy. And, uh, you know, kind of, like, Esper Control definitely felt like a thing that I could draft again. Mardu... I think it's probably in the like go wide space. It has the usual issue that Mardu has where a lot of those colors structurally are looking to be pretty aggressive and then your three colors say your mana is not perfect. But aside from that, I think it's like pretty coherent. Anyway, I think green does make, you know, like about half of the good common fixing is green. So it's definitely easier to play more colors if you're green but I still think that if, as long as you're willing to prioritize making your mana work, you can certainly play, uh, you know, non-green multicolored decks if uh, that's something you're looking to do. Um, and there are, you know, there are synergistic coherent uh, decks there. The strengths of white commons, or at least my perception of it, has led to me getting into several white heavy aggressive decks. Uh, mostly with good results. Have I drafted that sort of deck much? Yeah, I drafted, I mean, I wouldn't say much, but I did um, the last live draft that I did, the last like paper draft that I did on Saturday was like a Boros deck where I only ended up playing two of my matches, but it played pretty well. Um, and uh, like the unicorn, the uncommon unicorn uh, plays really well with some of the cards that like make multiple bodies and... I know other people had some success with like blue 
quite aggressive detective decks. So uh, I, I I think that you know it's a potential good deck. Any common or uncommon that don't look good in a vacuum but will overperform in this set? Well, a lot of the ones that I don't that I think are questionable, I don't think will overperform. Right? Like I was saying that I think that. Uh, the kind of like build arounds will underperform. Like I think that they will have poor stats on 17 lands, even though in a lot of cases, I suspect that I will like them and will play with them and they'll be good. So for example, you say my votes for underrated will be Rubble Belt, Maverick and Polygraph Orb. Uh, I think that there are decks that can use those cards well. I think Polygraph Orb will have terrible stats. Polygraph Orb is the five mana artifact that like dark bargains, uh, like look at four cards, put two of them in your hand, two of them in your graveyard, lose two life, and then you can spend mana and tap it and collect evidence to make your opponent sack a creature or lose three life or discard a card. I think there are decks that can use it, but that most of the time it'll end up being uh, like on the slow and clunky side and people won't have the life to spend. Rubble Belt Maverick is another one where it's really, really good in the dedicated graveyard decks but I don't know that it's going to end up having great stats overall. So my answer is that for most of the cards that look narrow, I think they are narrow. And I think most of the time in aggregate stats on 17 lands, they won't be used appropriately. But I think, you know, basically it feels to me so far, I haven't tried everything, but most of the stuff feels like there's a way to make it work. You know, there, there are a lot of sets where I feel like, oh, the problem with this two color pair is that like, it's a trap. It tells you that you should be drafting around this thing, and actually you shouldn't. There's probably going to be some of that, some things that are hard to make work. But I guess with this set, I feel like it's a lot of build around cards, like rather than just like theme, like training for a two color deck. And the thing about building around a card is, you know, either you have that card or maybe you have multiples of that card. And if you build around it, then it gives you what it promises to give you. And, you know, like say chalk outline, which I don't think is a trap, turned out to be a trap. There was just no way to make a good chalk outline deck. That doesn't say anything about whether there's a good not chalk outline deck in whatever color combo combination you might try to put chalk outline in. Or on the other hand, if, most of the graveyard decks aren't good, but Chalk Outline is actually a bomb if you draft around it. Then there might be a Chalk Outline deck, even if, you know, the green-black graveyard deck without Chalk Outline is bad. And so when you're specifically drafting around these, like, specific, really high-impact build-around uncommons, I think it kind of, like, changes the nature of things being traps and of like understanding how the like build arounds work or whatever. So I guess this is to say the framing of the question about overperforming is maybe the thing I'm getting hung up on here, but also the thing that I find interesting um, where, you know, again, I just think that aggregate performance is not going to be the way to analyze the build around cards in particular. With doubles of commons or uncommons, is it harder to send signals about colors? All right, I've seen a lot of discussion about like, oh, it's so much harder to signal because the distribution of colors is more variable or, uh, you know, like the, there's not one card of every color or there are like 
very slightly more duplicates impacts or whatever. And I don't think that's how sig signals work. The good cards are what send signals. And you shouldn't really spend all that much time investigating a pack to figure out what's not there. And you should just take the good cards. And the signal is sent because when you take the good cards, you happen to not see good cards of the color the person passing to you is taking because they took them. I feel like there's this idea that there's a lot of like, oh, let me try to like deduce what was missing from this pack that I think is really just like putting your mental effort in the wrong place in terms of like properly reading a signal. And so I think that this kind of like construction of like analysis of the construction of the filler commons in a pack is just not actually meaningful to like the way that one should actually interact with signals at this point. The signals are really just, am I, like, it's much more about presence than absence. Like, uh, a, a positive signal is a lot louder than a negative sig uh, signal. So the way that you signal that a color is open is you pass, like, a bomb in that color third pick, and then the person you're passing to goes, oh, I guess no one's in this color because they didn't take this bomb. And, like, the distribution of commons just doesn't affect any of that. You answered my question last week about initial approach to the format being drafting low-curve decks. How has the low-curve decks panned out? You know, it, there, there's always a temptation to take powerful, expensive cards, so I can't necessarily say, you know, that I've drafted exceptionally low-curve decks. I mean, I, that, I guess the answer is cheap cards have felt good, and my decks that have had more, like, a lower curve and more cheap cards have definitely generally played better than my, than my decks that are a little too clunky. I still strongly believe that, you know, cheap cards are good in this format. Thoughts on Branch of Vitugazi. This is the uh, uncommon land with disguise. It taps for colorless. Uh, I think that it is... Oh, and when you flip it over, it gives you some colored mana. I don't think it's a particularly good way to try to fix your mana because um, you end up, like, spending a ton of mana to, like, fix and like kind of functionally sacrificing a creature and it's, it's just like unbelievably clunky for that purpose I, I think that it's mostly just like split card color like uh dfc uh colorless untapped land and like gray ogre that kind of ramps you if it gets to dodge removal but um mostly i think it's like a way to play you know 16 and a half or 17 and a half lands for like two color aggro decks with good mana. Um, I don't prioritize it very highly. Uh, you mentioned with is it there was less need to be able to add color and be multicolor. Could that mean that clue synergies and is it are one of the most supported and resilient synergies in the set? No, you could almost argue the opposite, right? Because they have less support available from other colors. I think that like with a lot of the other stuff, you can do it in two. It's just that there are like, you know, you sometimes see like really appealing cards that could support what you're doing in another color also. That's what I have to say about that. Do I feel like the format has fewer real two color pairs uh, than in a normal set like Ikoria where um, it was mutate or cycling, and the pairs blended together because there weren't many set mechanics to separate them. 
I don't know. I do largely feel like the two color pairs, or at least several of the two color pairs, do have meaningful identities. Some some do and some don't, I guess. There's like a decent mix. I think that I don't feel comfortable coming down on one side of this. Because like I, I think that you can uh draft, you know, coherent two color decks that really lean into a thing, even if I ne haven't necessarily been like leaning toward doing it. I guess basically there are a lot of hypothetical two-color decks that do synergistic things that look appealing to me. And I have not been drafting them because I'm afraid of competing with someone else. Like, I, I tried drafting kind of like a linear Golgari deck in one of the paper drafts that I did. And it just happened to be a draft where, like, two or three other people were trying to do the same thing and my deck was horrible. And so it feels safer to me to like prioritize fixing and uh, be a lot more flexible with like just kind of taking good cards and working it out like the way that I would in a cube. But that doesn't mean that you can't, you know, find an open lane and do, do a two color thing. It just feels more risky to me given the way that I draft. How would I rate counterspells in the format? The Mana Leak, the Uncommon Mana Leak is a good card. There aren't a lot of counterspells. I'm not someone who puts Quench in my deck in general, so I don't have experience with that one, but it I've, uh, it's been good against me once, at least. Do I believe combat tricks, auras, and equipment are more viable in this format with Ward? I do think that there are good combat tricks, good auras, and good equipment in this format, and I do think Ward helps them a little bit. I don't know exactly how related I think those ideas are. Question, how did cards with collect with the collect evidence mechanic perform? For example, is it worthwhile to include some of them when possible, or should you be really careful not to play too many of them, not to overburden your graveyard? If you are playing a lot of them, then you want to make sure that you are actively supporting them by having ways to like mill yourself and stuff. You you need to understand if you're like and then when you're doing when you're playing a bunch of them you're probably playing some of the ones that like let you do it repeatedly or give you something when you do it or give you something when a creature leaves the graveyard and then you want a lot of it but you also want a lot of uh like mill and ways to enable it and stuff like that uh if you're not doing that thing then you want to be careful that you don't have too much collect evidence except in that space, you know, maybe it's like, well, I have a bunch of the like sorcery speed green removal spells, and it's like sometimes I'll be able to collect evidence for it, and sometimes I won't, and that's fine because I won't always need to. Sometimes I'll just have to demand that it pay full price. So I don't know. That, that that's what I have to say about that. I'm sure I'll talk more about it uh, in a future episode when I talk about decks that use it. And I'm gonna wrap it up there. So thank you so much, everyone, for your questions. And uh, I will be back next week with, uh, you know, the usual uh, single archetype structure rather than the overview. Uh, since I've been playing mostly five color, I didn't feel like I had a ton of information about like any of the more narrow archetypes. And since five color is a very broad topic, I didn't really feel like I was at the point because I think that it's both pretty like broad and big and pretty important for this format. And I didn't really want to do uh, like, I, I want to do that topic justice. So I didn't want to do it like right away. That, that, that will be in an upcoming episode along with uh, any of the other archetypes that I find interesting. 
So thanks for listening. Have a good week, and I'll be back next week. Bye for now, everyone. Prepare for light speed.